So welcome back. If this is your first time tuning in, thanks for joining us. I'm Parissa. I'm Kaylin. And we have a guest today, uh, Dr. Anthony Hazard. Hey um, everyone, what's up? Do you want to talk a little bit about yourself before we get into kind of like the little disclaimer and then... Yeah, sure. Um, I'm an associate professor, just received tenure and promotion. Um, I'm in ethnic studies uh, with a courtesy appointment in the history department. Um, prior to coming here, I was a postdoc at Northwestern. Uh, let's see, PhD in history from Temple, undergrad Arizona State in African American studies and psychology. Uh, I love my Ravens and my Orioles. Um, and that's about it. Yeah. Okay. So before we get in, kind of like how we um, gave a little reason for why we're even having a guest speaker join us today, um, because it's Black History Month and because we're talking about a topic that has to do with blackness and being black in America and neither Kaylin nor I can speak to that experience because we're not black. We wanted to bring somebody on, um, Dr. Hazard in this podcast, that can kind of speak to that deeper understanding of what it is as an experience to be black in America. So this episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Malcolm X and remembering his legacy on the 54th anniversary of his assassination. And the day we're recording this, February 21st, is actually the day he was assassinated. And so, um, Kaylin, do you want to kind of start us off with a little background on Malcolm X? Yes. So just a quick kind of overview of who Malcolm X was. Um, so he was born in 1925 in Omaha, but he grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Um, he, you know, throughout his um, upbringing, he kind of, uh, his father was actually killed by a white supremacist group. Um, and after that, his mother had a hard time dealing with it and kind of a lot of series of events led to him and his siblings kind of having to grow up in foster care as well. Um, and he was actually uh, in prison for, I think, burglar, burglary um, in 1946. And was this before he turned 18? Like, as a minor, was he? Um, no. Because I feel like if he went to prison, then he must have been over 18, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So okay. he was, what, 20? Yes. About uh, 46? Yeah, yeah. 21? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so while he was there, he actually became introduced to the Nation of Islam by his brother Reginald. Mm-hmm. Um, and... I think that's what a lot of people might know him for, is Malcolm X was associated with the Nation of Islam and that group there. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, again, was introduced to that while he was in prison. And then when he was paroled in 1952, he came out and was a devoted follower and practitioner of Islam mm-hmm. and was eventually uh, a mis- minister and natural spokesperson for the Nation of Islam group. Mm-hmm. Um, however, he ended up leaving the Nation of Islam in 1964 after some disagreements with its leader, Elijah Muhammad. Mm-hmm. Um, you might be able to talk a little more in depth on that later. Yeah. Um, and then a year later in 1965, on February 22nd, he was assassinated while he was at a speaking engagement at Manhattan's Audubon mm-hmm. Ballroom. And so that's a very, very brief and quick yeah. kind of overview of who he was. Dr. Hazard, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say. Um, I think something that, that should be mentioned is that um, after Malcolm's mother is, is you know, deemed by the state to be mentally unfit, mm-hmm. um, 
you know, to remain a mother in the household with the children. Malcolm, you know, he's he's sent to live um, in in kind of group homes, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then when he becomes a teenager, when he's he's coming of age, he goes to live with his sister Ella in Boston. Mm-hmm. And this bit kind of gets lost, right? So this is the moment in which Malcolm begins to really explore the world. So he's mm-hmm. traveling. He's working. Um, as a porter on on the train, mm. so he's traveling to Harlem, right? He's traveling down to Philly, um, and he's he's seeing the world in a new way. Um, in addition to then getting into criminal activity mm. in Boston and, and famously um, in Harlem, and so that's what then leads to his incarceration and obviously the big mm-hmm. you know transformation while he's locked up. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just to elaborate a little bit more on. Um, his father's death. So uh, whatever resources that we reference will put up on the OML page, but I'm looking at something that's saying um, his father died in what was officially ruled a streetcar accident, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting because, um, you know, like it mentions here that he found, you know, like the possibility that his father was murdered by a white supremacist group, Mm -hmm. very disturbing. And I wonder how much that like shaped his politics hmm. and how he presented his ideas. And I think it's really hard to judge somebody for, you know, saying that you can't practice non- nonviolence with, you know, an opponent who has been historically very mm. violent mm-hmm. um, because he's experienced, you know, like white supremacy and mm-hmm. violence, you know, based on race. And so just kind of taking that piece of information into account, it makes sense that he would have like a less, you know, nonviolence based policy, at least towards the beginning of like mm-hmm. his. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's I mean, this is a huge question here um, when we're dealing with Malcolm and often uh, we deal with Malcolm and Martin at the same time, or at least we attempt to. Um, (laughs) And when conversations were being had, you know, in the late 50s, in the early 60s, um, the focus, so much of the critique of Malcolm was that he was a violent person, Mm -hmm. when in fact he was not, quote, a violent person. He advocated the right for armed self defense, mm-hmm. right? And I think that, that that's that's a huge distinction to make, right, between someone who wants to just pick up guns and go out and, and, and target people, um, versus someone who, you know, to their mind is thinking critically about, mm-hmm. you know, as as you gestured toward about the history of violence, right? The mm-hmm. the way that racialized violence sits at the heart of of American democracy, mm. so to speak. So this is really where Malcolm was coming from when he talked about, um, you know, the right to self-defense. Yeah, that perception is so popular, but it's so unfounded. If you even look at his quotes, it's something that is a very, very clear distinction, mm-hmm. like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a quote, and mm-hmm. I'm just saying this, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like, not verbatim, but mm-hmm. he says, you know, be a nonviolent person, but if somebody, you know, like, does something to harm you, like, put them in the grave. And I'm sure he doesn't mean, you know, like, literally, but it's kind of that idea of, you know, like, don't don't attack anybody mm-hmm. unless you're provoked, but if mm-hmm. something happens where you need mm-hmm. to defend yourself, by all means necessary, mm-hmm. you need to do that, yes. right? 
and and it's it just kind of like reminds me of the criminalization of you know like the black male mm-hmm. in general mm-hmm. in media mm-hmm. we're so quick to you know like we never really question why all the you know like criminals and convicts quote unquote mm-hmm. that they show us mm-hmm. on tv mm-hmm. are predominantly people of color and predominantly black males mm-hmm. so yeah yeah and i think it definitely is it takes me kind of back to dr angela davis's uh interview while she was in prison and she was asked about violence mm-hmm. and it's like this idea that you're separating like a reaction from like someone's lived experience. If someone's lived experience is a history of like mm. violence that's racialized violence and targeting them and their community, mm-hmm. how can they how can you expect them to not like retaliate in some sort of way and just kind of lie down and accept it because that's growing up that that's all that they know. That's mm-hmm. the lived experience. So mm-hmm. I think your point to like understanding that history that comes with mm-hmm. it is critical and I think that's what people often misinterpret or misremember when you're talking about someone like Malcolm X, especially mm-hmm. when they mm-hmm. are so like bent on trying to put a binary between him right. and yeah. Martin Luther King. Yes. Yeah. Is this the clip that they showed in the documentary Thirteenth of Angela Davis where somebody asked her about violence mm-hmm. and she said like like the fact that you're even asking me about violence mm-hmm. when you know like I live next door to three of the four girls who were killed in the mm-hmm. Selma church bombing by the KKK and you know like my dad had to always have guns mm-hmm. loaded and ready to go mm-hmm. and we lived like we were in a war zone mm-hmm. and it was very clear that like the person who was asking her the question did not have any idea what yeah. mentality yeah like was created when you live in an environment like that day in and day out yeah and that so that that clip is from that interview is from the black power mixtape mm-hmm. um and it's <clears throat> excuse me still getting over this cold um <laughs> so i show that clip in my intro class and then um in my malcolm and martin class mm-hmm. um for several reasons but the one i'll just mention here is that you know, Professor Davis grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Birmingham, Alabama was one of the most staunchly segregated and violent places in the country. Um, civil rights activists took to, to calling Birmingham Bombingham because mm-hmm. it was so, it was just customary for the Klan to, to bomb activists' homes, to bomb churches. Um, and so the, the interviewer didn't quite understand mm-hmm. that context, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, when he's posing that question to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving towards kind of like his later life and the influences. So I definitely want to mm-hmm. kind of get into the impact of Islam in shaping mm-hmm. who Malcolm was as a person because something that's very distinctly in my mind when I remember Malcolm X is mm-hmm. the fact that he was very unapologetically black and mm-hmm. very unapologetically Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I think just like the representation for mm-hmm. um Muslims to see another like black Muslim like themselves Mm -hmm. and I just I just think it's a really interesting comparison because you know like Martin Luther King Jr. was a religious man but he was Christian and then Malcolm Mm -hmm. X was a religious man also Mm -hmm. and he was Muslim and he actually like he was El Hajj Malik Mm -hmm. Shabazz because he went to Mecca which is like Mecca Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so this was something that you know like even you know, like moderately religious people don't always do, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, like his conviction in Islam was so firm that he took 
that pilgrimage, you know, and it was something that I really think that Islam had a really big hand in shaping Malcolm X's life. Um, But yeah, I'm curious to, because I don't know, curious to hear what you guys think about it and kind of like the impact of Islam and how Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. intersects with being black Mm -hmm. in his Mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That, I mean, that, that moment in which Malcolm decides to make Hajj is fraught. It's so fraught, right? Because he's disillusioned mm-hmm. with what's going on in the nation of Islam. Um, we could we could call them transgressions mm-hmm. that Elijah Muhammad um, committed repeatedly. Um, and so Malcolm is he's brought to this moment in which he's he's questioning his belief systems. He's mm-hmm. questioning his right to be political, and the 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 kind of broader contours Mm -hmm. of the NOI um, seem to Malcolm very restricting, very Mm -hmm. limiting Mm -hmm. in that moment. And so when Malcolm makes Hajj and he's, you know, on the other side of the world Mm -hmm. and he's around people and he writes very eloquently about this in his letters, you know, to to his wife, Mm -hmm. um, that he's meeting people who share his faith, who don't look like him. He's meeting people Mm -hmm. who don't speak English, um, but yet there's uh, the, the phrase he uses is there's a tremendous feeling of brotherhood, mm-hmm. right? And so his perceptions of his place in the world are changing, they're expanding, mm-hmm. right? So just the time that he, that he spent with folks mm-hmm. while making the pilgrimage, I think it, it, was, it left an indelible imprint mm-hmm. on him, mm-hmm. you know, his, both his religiosity and his politics, Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think also because I, I read the autobiography of mm-hmm. Malcolm X mm-hmm. a while ago, but mm-hmm. I remember um, in his autobiography he talks about how he was so like anti-religion that mm-hmm. they called him Satan in mm-hmm. prison, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine going from somebody who's very like opposed to all religion, especially in prison where a lot of convicts kind of do like reconnect with whatever religious connection they might have had in their youth. Um, to go from that to very, you know, like a very firm believer of Islam, mm-hmm. changing mm-hmm. his name, mm-hmm. you know, making pilgrimage. I think that kind of like highlights the fact that his childhood, he may have felt lost mm-hmm. because, you know, he lost his father. He was removed mm-hmm. from his mother's supervision and mm-hmm. kind of like had to make his own home wherever mm-hmm. he went. Mm-hmm. And because he didn't have that like solid identity mm-hmm. going into prison when it was kind of offered to him as like you can be part of the nation of islam and join this greater brotherhood mm-hmm. um he was more like prone to joining the movement mm-hmm. and becoming a muslim than he mm-hmm. would have been if he had had like a relatively stable home life you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and i think it definitely speaks to this idea of like brotherhood too mm-hmm. and like the fact that it crossed so many boundaries like you said, he was meeting people who didn't look like him, but mm-hmm. they were tied by this faith. And I think something that like religion and faith often and spirituality often offers is something that is very intangible. That's not necessarily something that you're able to see, mm-hmm. but you still feel that very deep connection yeah. with someone else. Mm-hmm. And it like transcends a lot of physical boundaries mm-hmm. or like, physical mm-hmm. borders that we might put mm-hmm. upon different like, communities mm-hmm. because they just don't look the same. And mm-hmm. yet here he was being able to, across his religion, meet these people from like, around the world and yeah. 
yeah. coming together in like one big group. Mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. also like really mm-hmm. speaks to that too and mm-hmm. something that's very powerful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also like when we're talking about how misrepresented Malcolm X has been, you know, throughout the years, yeah. it's yeah. also important to kind of consider the fact that the nation of Islam has also been very misrepresented. I'm mm-hmm. not like too mm-hmm. familiar with mm-hmm. their ideologies, but I, you know, just like not knowing anything, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. just kind mm-hmm. of the association of the words nation of Islam mm-hmm. has very much been vilified in media. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like a visceral, like, they're not a good group to be associated with right. kind of a reaction, right. like a gut reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like, whether or not they are a good group, I can't really speak to that. I don't know if either sure. of you have anything to add. Sure. But the fact that he distanced himself from that group later in right. his life was still not enough to like, you know, kind of grant him a better status than mm-hmm. the one that mm-hmm. he's represented as having today, mm-hmm. you know? No, definitely. It, it, so with with the, the Nation of Islam, <clears throat> um, some of the, I think, more glaring mm-hmm. problematic aspects of, of, of the NOI mm-hmm. um, have to do with the, the patriarchy, right? Um, the ways in which the organization was set up and run, um, and certainly um, the willingness of leadership to um, embrace very hypocritical ways mm-hmm. of living, yeah. right? Um, there's a lot that could be said there on, on the NOI, mm-hmm. um, but there's a second point that I'd like to make concerning you know, Malcolm's transition out of the nation mm-hmm. and into... Um, this embrace of what what he called old world Islam, mm-hmm. right? He became Sunni, mm-hmm. and for him, that was a moment of growth. It was critical reflection, mm-hmm. um, and it was a way for him to just kind of embrace expanding his own again his his worldview. And so he he wanted to to really embrace old world Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and utilize that that knowledge, that awareness, you know, that critical thinking, to be more political, mm-hmm. right? And to expand the range of his politics and mm-hmm. to embrace other people, mm-hmm. um, again beyond the, the 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 confounds of of the NOI, because again, mm-hmm. it was so restrictive. There were moments when Malcolm wanted to do something, you know, during the Birmingham campaign of mm-hmm. of the spring of '63. Um, during the sit-ins in in, in um, the winter of 1960, Malcolm had that in him, but the nation didn't allow him to practice those politics. Mm-hmm. So he finally takes the reins of his own politics yeah. and, and, and moves forward. Mm-hmm. And I also think kind of like with the whole theme of moving forward and mm-hmm. past boundaries that he might have been comfortable being within at one point, is you know the shedding of his name going from the name Malcolm Little mm-hmm. and changing it to Malcolm X and for those of you who are unfamiliar the the reason behind why he did that was because um, the Little was the slave owner's name the the individual who owned Malcolm's ancestors um, a lot of times historically slave owners would kind of give whatever their last name was to their slaves underneath them so you would be you know John Williams and you know because you were black and you had a white man's last name they would know that you were you know so and so slave right and so him shedding that was kind of rejecting the last name that had been given to him and his ancestors by um, white slave owners 
and it kind of symbolizes like a blank you know where had he you know had his ancestors been left in africa mm -hmm. and had black people not been abducted and brought to america as slaves mm -hmm. um that blank would be filled in with his legitimate last name right and so you know that transition is is what we now know him as we call him mm -hmm. malcolm x mm -hmm. but um when he became very you know firmly involved in islam he changed his name to i think it was malik shabazz mm -hmm. or malik uh, al shabazz mm -hmm. and um i'm unfamiliar with the last name Shabazz and why he chose that. I don't know if either of you can kind of elaborate on that a little bit because I, be I believe Shabazz um, is um, the name for a particular group of people, mm -hmm. a particular mm -hmm. tribe. And I'm not sure exactly what Shabazz means. Maybe we could get that. Yeah. Um, but I'll just add quickly for, um, for members of the nation, mm -hmm the x was to symbolize as it does in mathematics the unknown mm -hmm. right and so that was um quite customary for those just joining the nation mm -hmm. um or those who had been in the nation who who held on to the the unknown mm -hmm. right the x so i'm seeing here it shabazz is the name of a black architect whose tribe founded the populations of africa according yes. to the doctrine doctrine of the nation of islam right the tribe of mm -hmm. shabazz yeah yes and the El Hajj that's in front of his name sometimes when you see uh, him being referenced is what they call somebody who makes pilgrimage to, to Mecca mm -hmm. as a Muslim. Um, women are Haji and men are Hajj. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's I think the fact that he also like chose to include that mm -hmm. in front of his name is something mm -hmm. that like shows that he was really proud of his religion and he yes. was confident in that being an integral part of his identity, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting too when we're talking about how he was so uh, he ha he was very proud of his religion and his faith and wore it on his sleeve. Um, I wonder like how current like our current views of like on like just a societal level of like Islamophobia mm -hmm. play in in terms of like how he's remembered because yeah. I definitely see like his legacy has definitely been like kind of taken and like misinterpreted by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We've kind of talked already about like how people just misinterpreted his like use of like violence mm -hmm. um, as like attack but not understanding it's violence as self-defense. Yeah. I wonder like what like Islamophobia might be playing into mm -hmm. that as well. I can speak kind of to like the the kind of intersectionality of mm -hmm. um, like Islam and being Muslim as being part of your identity because mm -hmm. You know, I've said this so many times before on the podcast, but mm -hmm. I identify as somebody who is Middle Eastern, North African. And mm -hmm. because a lot of time Islam is so deeply ingrained in those cultures, it's something that has become very synonymous mm -hmm. almost with being, you know, at least North African. But a lot of times with just being more broadly African and with being mm -hmm. Middle Eastern. And mm -hmm. I think it's kind of like. A double negative against somebody like Malcolm X where you know you're already criminalized for being a black male in America but also you know add on top of that all the imagery and the propaganda of the East being full of terrorists and Muslims you know being on some like holy jihad to cleanse mm -hmm. the world of all like other people who are not Muslims mm -hmm. and I think mm -hmm. that double negative is really something that makes him like America's favorite person to hate mm. you know yeah, it's it's um, 
one of the, you know, <clears throat> the impetus really for me mm -hmm. in designing the Malcolm and Martin class, um, which I've only taught twice, um, was to demystify both individuals and, and get closer to the truth about them. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I, that I kind of saw over the years um, and then now teaching the course is that people, students at any level, pick one, right? Mm -hmm. Grade school, junior high, high school, even college, students aren't provided factual information mm -hmm. about the two. And so getting to a, a, a place where we can actually analyze their religiosity, mm -hmm. their spirituality, their politics is really difficult because there is no baseline. Um, we're talking about, you know, images and representations rather than factual information. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's just Dr. King completely eclipses mm -hmm. Malcolm, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're like literally in Harlem mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's a street or boulevard, it's a boulevard actually, mm -hmm. Malcolm X Boulevard, yeah. right? Um, it's, it's just, it's there's no comparing mm -hmm. the two in terms of their presence in American popular culture yeah. and mm -hmm. and political life, it's just not there. So there's so much excavation mm -hmm. that has to happen. You know, we have to uncover all of the rocks, mm -hmm. all of the boulders that have just held Malcolm down um, to bring him to light. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's so much work to be done. And what's really unfortunate is I feel like as a as a person of color, right, you, you know, there's binaries for what's acceptable for you to be yes. and what's not acceptable for you yes. to be. And, you know, like yes. MLK yes. is a great, you know, example of, yes. you know, standing up for yourself and black power and black pride because he was nonviolent. And we mm -hmm. like him for that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. because Malcolm X, you know, disregarding whatever experiences shape the reason that he mm -hmm. takes a different platform than mm -hmm. MLK, he's not acceptable and mm -hmm. we don't want to condone that. Mm -hmm. So it's like you have very clear binaries between what's like a good person of color right. and what's a bad person of color. Right. And I think that's so dangerous because it, like for people, especially because, you know, like media, especially then and now mm -hmm. is very uh, white dominated mm -hmm. and they are kind of like playing into who is like, you know, motivating them to run which headlines mm -hmm. and why. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's very clear that because Malcolm was not what they wanted him to be, uh, they kind of shunned him. Mm -hmm. And I think their treatment of him really speaks volumes about like what people of color are, ex like how people of color yes. are expected to voice yes. their rage. Yes. When it's like you have, you would have no idea because, you know, imagine being oppressed for 400 years and all of the structural, you know, issues mm -hmm. and social mm -hmm. issues. There's, mm -hmm. you know, your friends mm -hmm. being gunned down on the street mm -hmm. and nothing's happening to the people who are responsible for it because they're white. Like you can't judge somebody's anger and how they choose to present that. Right. Absolutely. It, yeah. It's it's and there's there's a lot to be said about Dr. King and how he's mm -hmm. represented. This is February. It's Black History Month, um, and I was just talking to a student um, in office hours, and we were talking about this very thing that 
you know, I'm watching an NBA game and commercial comes on and it's NBA players and they are talking about what Dr. King means to them. Mm-hmm. And and uh, being critically aware, I can mm-hmm. say that, that um, what was stated by many of the NBA players revealed that they weren't necessarily fully aware of Dr. King's politics. Mm-hmm. Again, so they're, they're even for some black folks, mm-hmm. right? There's this embrace of a particular Dr. King, the haloed mm-hmm. hero, mm-hmm. you know, Dr. King, not the, the democratic socialist Dr. King, not mm-hmm. the Dr. King that was critiquing connections between militarism and racism and global capitalism. That's really not the King that we get, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that that reveals that there's so much work to be done there as well. Mm-hmm. Even in trying to present a comparative, it's ill-informed because <laughs> yeah. people don't really know what King's politics and his goals ultimately mm-hmm. were. Um, and that's highly problematic. It really mm-hmm. is. Particularly for us sitting here in this month, yeah. right, mm-hmm. talking about these two these two giants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I don't know where I was reading this, but I think I was reading the other day about, you know, where even though MLK is like, you know, kind of presented as very nonviolent, a lot of the things that he was saying in terms of his uh, like policy and kind of like where like lines would be drawn mm-hmm. for when it was acceptable to like engage in violence mm-hmm. if it was being directed towards you. Mm-hmm. He was kind of like on the same page as Malcolm X with that. Both of them kind of seemed to be in agreement that, you know, don't do anything against anybody right. until you're provoked and then right. you have the right to defend yourself because, you know, our we've been standing down for 400 years. Mm-hmm. Let's not do it anymore so that we can, you know, at least see some kind of change. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if, like, in truth how um, violent or nonviolent he was, but like you were saying, I totally agree that I think that he's been kind of, like, made to be... You know, like the picture of um, protesting and movements when maybe he was like, no, I completely agree with Malcolm. Yes. Yeah. He, Dr. King had bodyguards, Mm -hmm. right? Like, like, let's be clear. Um, (laughs) And and they, he had strapped bodyguards. Mm -hmm. Um, His home was bombed um, when he, this is when he's first becoming a national figure during the Montgomery bus boycott of, Mm -hmm. of 1955 and 56. They bombed Dr. King's house. He actually takes steps to apply for a gun license. It's rejected. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that moment forward, Dr. King, indeed, at various moments throughout his political career, he had armed bodyguards. Mm-hmm. So, again, this isn't a part of the, of the King story that, mm-hmm. that we hear. Um, and even moving forward, you know, when, when Dr. King is, is writing um, some of the, the, the final works that he would mm-hmm. publish, that he would publish um, before being assassinated in April of 1968, mm-hmm. he spends quite a bit of time engaging black power, like mm-hmm. philosophically and practically. Um, and one of the issues he talks about is, quote, violence, right? The urban uprisings that mm-hmm. had been occurring in cities across the nation, you know, starting in 1965, then in 67, that summer in particular, and Dr. King described what you know the folks in in news media would call riots he said well no they're they're actually urban uprisings and this is how people who have been you know tremendously oppressed mm-hmm. this is how they're speaking mm-hmm. right and so dr king he we oversimplify 
his politics, we oversimplify his understanding and comprehension mm -hmm. of what poor black folk were putting up with and dealing with and responding to. Um, and again, there, there are connections there between mm -hmm. Malcolm and King. But again, this is, this is not what we get. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it definitely speaks to the, I think media's desire to, oftentimes you'll see them like pit two like individuals from like the same community right. against each other. Mm -hmm. And it's almost as if mm -hmm. they're trying to do the work that maybe the state can't like physically do in separating mm -hmm. that community. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks volumes when you're seeing that like media representation is like, mm -hmm. often vilifying one and like deifying yeah. the other. Mm -hmm. And it's mm -hmm. like, no, you're not understanding like the fuller context. You're mm -hmm. by flattening their, poli their politics and their story and their legacy, it's doing so much injustice mm -hmm. to the work they did yeah. mm -hmm. because there are yeah. so many overlaps and understanding different contexts of like King operating on in the South, at least in mm -hmm. his like earlier years yeah. in politics. And yeah. then, you know, Malcolm X coming from the North. Um, and those, again, are very different contexts in terms mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. how, what segregation looks like, mm -hmm. um, what, you know, demographics are, you mm -hmm. know, where people are living and how people are living. Mm -hmm. It's completely different. It's all like kind mm -hmm. of, erased erased or and or like mm -hmm. suppressed and hidden mm -hmm. from everyone else because it doesn't fit what the media wants in terms of a narrative yes and i think this kind of you know like gives us an insight as to what people were perceiving about mm -hmm. malcolm and martin at this point because if they really were not significant and if they really did not have an impact, why would there be so much effort to divide them and kind of pit them against one another mm -hmm. um, and create a narrative of which one do you like better, Malcolm or right. Martin? You know, right. if they really were not truly more powerful united, I don't think that would have been the situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Both were seen as threats. Both mm -hmm. were surveilled by the FBI. Um, you know, COINTELPRO was was around uh, when Garvey showed up. Mm -hmm. You know, in in, in the nineteen teens. Mm -hmm. um, so the FBI has a long history of trying to infiltrate and then destroy black political movements. Um, and and you know, some would argue that they've been successful in doing that. Um, but one other thing I want I wanted to mention mm -hmm. um, about Dr. King and something something that you um, just brought up, and that is kind of the the narratives that are crafted about these two, and I'm thinking of of, um, of Dr. King, and this is an argument that um, scholar Kevin Brunier makes mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a piece that he published a few years ago about the King Monument, and the argument is that the, the, the narrative about King that has been crafted allows many of us in this country, um, particularly white Americans who are involved in this sort of scholarship and, and, and um, in this political arena, it's allowed us to tell a story about race in America as a story of progress. Mm -hmm. If we just oversimplify King and say, okay, slavery happened, then Jim Crow happened, then King mm -hmm. came along and he fixed everything. And that's the story of race in America. <laughs> and, and we might respond in saying that, well, okay, so a white racist assassinated Dr. King. <laughs> and then, right, we, we still have these very, um, very uh, uh, clear 
problems in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, not just legislative changes, mm -hmm. but what King actually focused on from 65 um, to the end of his life, and that is economic justice. Mm -hmm. So it was still there, right? So this story is... is Cut short. A tool, right, mm -hmm. to, to depoliticize King and, and to tell us that everything is okay now and that we have no business talking about racism mm -hmm. because it's been fixed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I think that also speaks to the fact that where it's cut off is before kind of when he's like doing a lot of work on economic justice. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And that refusal to yes. understand the intersections with that and the under like to actually see the fact that the people who are being hit the hardest with economic injustice yes. are black and brown communities. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just, it's so interesting to me that people are unable to see that because it's not like this, this information is out there. Mm -hmm. It's just right. people are unwilling to like do the work yeah. right. and then find right. it. Right. Oppressive structures just go so deep. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's mind blowing to me sometimes the intersectionality of it all because it, it finally seems to kind of click into mm -hmm. place why it mm -hmm. makes sense that, you know, if you look at a lot of the underprivileged communities and a lot of the less economically stable communities, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they have always been, you know, brown mm -hmm. and black communities. Yeah, yeah. And I think just kind of touching back on the, the name theme with mm -hmm. Malcolm really quick, um, I do kind of want to briefly mention, so even after he had adopted um, Malik El-Shabazz, he actually went to, um, he spoke at the University of Abadan in, mm -hmm. in Nigeria, mm -hmm. and um, the Nigerian Muslim Students Association gave him an honorary Yoruba name. Um, I think it's pronounced Omowale, which translates to the son who has come home, mm -hmm. and um, Kind of recalling this and looking back on this, he says that this was his most treasured honor. Mm. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, you have a man who's accomplished incredible things in his lifetime. He's made strides not only in his own life, but for his community. You know, he's produced children. He's had a successful family life. Mm -hmm. And to kind of have, like, his most prized possession and the thing that he's most proud of be a name mm -hmm. kind of really symbolizes how literally every time Malcolm went through like a transition period in his life, his name changed. Mm -hmm. If you think about it that way, it was very much kind of like, I liken it to like a butterfly being mm -hmm. in a cocoon and then mm -hmm. shedding that stage and then moving on to the next stage. It's mm -hmm. kind of like he's evolving. And with that personal self evolution comes a new name to fit that new embodiment of mm -hmm. himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so oh, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> so, do you want to kind of move into his, um, like the years prior to his assassination? If there's nothing else we want to kind of touch on before we get into that little bit, sure. Okay, yeah. So I know, um, just from what I am aware of, mm -hmm. Kaylin, do you have like a basic breakdown of the events of the day that he was assassinated? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. Um, this is coming from, interestingly enough, a website that is titled MalcolmX.com. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was actually a week prior, on February 14th, mm -hmm. um, there was uh, his home in 
East Elmhurst, New York, was firebombed while uh, his entirely his entire family was there. And he, luckily, they all escaped before any serious injuries uh, occurred. Um, and that was literally a week before his actual assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, while he was at the speaking engagement, three gunmen actually rushed the stage when he was talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was shot 15 times at close range. Um, and he, I think there's also a very famous image, also to shout out this as well, because um, a lot of people don't know. He, mm-hmm. One of the people who was at, with him when he died um, was Yuri Kochiyama, who mm-hmm. was um, a Japanese American civil rights activist. And your um, personal hero. I know you're yeah. your personal hero. Got <laughs> um, a shout out, my favorite sweatshirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> both of them on there. Um, she was um, kind of with him when he was on the stage as well. And then he was taken to uh, New York's Columbia Presbyterian Hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see it. The, like, at, again, like when we talk about King, people see like, oh, you know, racism is solved or whatever. Right, right. Um, and he was assassinated by a white supremacist. And here mm-hmm. you see the exact same thing within just the last week of his life. So much racialized violence was targeted mm-hmm. against him. Um, and unfortunately succeeded in actually like terminating and killing him. And that was a snapshot of one week. So imagine what somebody like Malcolm X as a black man living in America during that time, imagine the kind of racism that they would experience, you know, in like a year or whatever the case Mm -hmm. is. And I, and I think it's, it's just kind of getting into the actual like autopsy, um, it identified 21 gunshot wounds to the chest, left shoulder, arms, and legs, including 10 buckshot wounds from the initial shotgun blast. So I watch a lot of true, true crime shows, and I listen to a lot of podcasts, <laughs> and I kind of want to get into like the anatomy of different kinds of murder. And when you have you know a large amount of wounds to a body, to me that kind of emphasizes hate, anger, and just kind mm-hmm. of like you're pulling the trigger, not even thinking about it because one shot is not enough for you. You mm-hmm. want to not only kill this man, but you want to destroy his body mm-hmm. because that's 21 gunshot wounds. Mm-hmm. And just just think about what one bullet wound does. Now imagine 21 of those, right? And I think it, it's so interesting to me that, you know, Islam, we talked about before how it was such an integral part of who he was. Mm-hmm. And in the end, it was the nation of Islam and kind of like that personification of Islam that contributed to his death because mm-hmm. on February 19th, uh, just a couple days before, he had told an interviewer that the nation of Islam was actively trying to kill him. Um, and the fact that that actually did happen, yes, and yes, I and I think yes. it was under, you know, the greater title of being, you know, on behalf of the nation of Islam, mm-hmm. Is, is a very interesting mm-hmm. juxtaposition, mm-hmm. you know, because it, mm-hmm. Islam was able to completely reinvent his life, but mm-hmm. at the same time, that personification of it took his life. Yeah, and it's, so, I mean, this is something, too, that, that uh, I think sometimes gets lost, and that is, there's, there's, let me say this, there's such a lack of understanding of what it means to be Muslim mm-hmm. of the Muslim faith in this country. There are, we see this mm-hmm. all over the media. We see it in our politics. 
right after 9-11 there were Sikhs being attacked because mm-hmm. people thought I guess they were Muslim they looked Muslim right. which is so, like what does a Muslim right, look like right <laughs> so 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 this, this is it's it's just loaded it's mm-hmm. in the the country's kind of political DNA particularly if we're talking about you know um, um, moving forward from uh, the late 1970s right mm-hmm. um, so this this anti-muslim sentiment that is coupled with a complete and utter lack of understanding of Islam right the nation of Islam and Malcolm made this very clear mm-hmm. the nation of Islam is not was not and is not orthodox or quote old world mm-hmm. Islam that's right. why it's called Nation it's, of Islam, not just Islam. Right, mm-hmm. and, and and you know the the early moments of the Nation of Islam. Right, that this is something that that we just aren't taught, mm-hmm. and so we don't know um, as Americans, of course, um, many of us. And so again, there's just this, there is this huge gap between mm-hmm. the realities of Malcolm's last few years on this earth. And his time in the nation of Islam and what being a Muslim means to Muslims, mm-hmm. even in this country, right? There's a long history of of Sunni Islam in the United States of America. Again, something we don't, we aren't even aware of because we aren't taught about it, and certainly we don't seek the answers, mm-hmm. right? We're cool with our assumptions mm-hmm. about things yeah. that are not like us from the perspective of, you know white Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes it's even hard for like Muslims to see eye to eye because within Mm. every religious group there's divisions, right? And so two like groups that are kind of like butting heads have always been uh, Shiites and Sunni Muslims. And so even within, you know, an oppressed group and a group that is vilified and marginalized, you have like further marginalizations Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're Mm -hmm. not on the same level as we are because Mm -hmm. everybody wants to flex what little power they have, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. -hmm. Yeah. And so just kind of um, getting into the individual who did assassinate him, um, I think it's interesting because it, in what I'm reading right now, it says that he was beaten by the crowd before police arrived. So this was, this was a crowd that, you know, was there out of, you know, belief in what Malcolm was saying and was there out of support. And I think the fact that he felt so emboldened to do that in a crowd of people that he could have interpreted were there, you know, out of the fact that they shared beliefs with him, um, really tells me how motivated he was to commit this crime and that he was being very bold and he was being very brazen about it and it was not something that he was maybe even apologetic for Mm -hmm. no Mm -hmm. because it was justified in his mind the group the group of three men Mm -hmm. you know that they were tasked with the assassination of malcolm Mm -hmm. yeah i think and then i mean with that too um it's on here they're saying that these three men were actually convicted of first degree murder in March of 1966. So I think that's interesting too, yeah. when you think about it. Because, I mean, like just drawing parallels now, you have people have issues, like, mm-hmm. if, for instance, it's like a white person, like, murders in like broad daylight with people watching, like, mm-hmm. a black man, like, standing in the street. Like, like cops. Like, yeah, y'all. That's I what mean. we're talking about. <laughs> Let's not use coded language here. Yeah. Um, and then there's like this huge, like, thing of like, oh, well, we need to get all the facts. Like, are we sure? Like, 
Was right. he like, did he, he had like the perceived notion of harm, but then when mm-hmm. it's like, people like, for instance, like these members, these people are members of the Nation of Islam, and they're like, that's maybe not fitting in with like the main, like the quote unquote mainstream mm-hmm. like American identity, that it's so quick to be like, oh yeah, like, of course, like we can like convince them. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, like there's just something so interesting and like, to me, when you're looking at like mm-hmm. things like this, because I mean, like, things like this happen all the time. You see, yep. people will see other people getting murdered in, this, in broad daylight, and yet there's, like, a hesitation if it's, like, mm-hmm. a white person doing this to a black person. Versus, it, like, yeah. you know. It's fascinating because I think, like, this concept can be summed up by the sentence that, you know, justice is, you know, like, bendable, basically. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. really depends on who is being judged Mm -hmm. and who is um, being punished and who is the victim. And I think a lot of times um, because the justice system has been built off the basis of other structures of Mm -hmm. oppression in this country, it is very difficult to separate that oppression from legal oppression Mm -hmm. and um, criminalization. And I think that a lot of times people will kind of disregard um, people being outspoken about black people being, you know, un... What is the word? Un, mm. Unequivocally... Is that it? I don't mm-hmm. know. Unequivocally targeted mm-hmm. by, you know, laws and mm-hmm. given harsher sentences um, as just being upset Um, and kind of like pulling at the, well, like, you know, this is unfair, Mm -hmm. but they're not realizing that this was built on an unfair system. You cannot have a fair system of justice built upon a flawed structure. Mm -hmm. It's just not possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think like people of color and people who are not economically, you know, or financially stable or underprivileged, which we mentioned are, you know, like majority brown and black Mm -hmm. people it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like multiple different odds stacked against them at once right yeah really quickly i wanted to mention um the a huge part of the misunderstanding of even the nation of islam that existed in the u.s um prior to and when malcolm was assassinated um really existed because of a, a, a cbs um uh, documentary that mm. they that they did mm. on the Nation mm. of Islam. I think it came out in f- 1958 or 59, mm. and I think the title was "The Hate That Hate Produced." Mm. And so CBS is already defining what this group is. And yes, you know we we can talk about the problematic aspects of mm. the Nation of Islam, but the way that that these folks were introduced mm-hmm. to the the viewing public in the U.S. was based on this notion of fear. These people are odd. They're weird. You know, this is CBS. We're talking about an era in which there's CBS, NBC, and ABC. That's mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. right? So people saw this. Mm-hmm. And from that moment forward, the Nation of Islam was referred to as a cult. Mm-hmm. They were called, you know, the black Muslims, Right there, there was a clear picture mm-hmm. of the nation that was painted mm-hmm. and that carried forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think history hasn't been kind to people like Malcolm X or groups like Nation of Islam because 
I can't think of a single group or a single identity or religion that doesn't have some fundamental problematic components, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we don't look at, you know, things in the Bible that are, you know, condemning mm-hmm. homosexuality and, um, like abstaining from sex until marriage with the same mm-hmm. lens that we mm-hmm. view the nation of Islam. And mm-hmm. I think that's also partially because mm-hmm. history is written by the victors mm-hmm. of a situation. And, you know, historically speaking, white people have been the victors, especially mm-hmm. in a situation mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. where, you know, this man lost his life at 39 mm-hmm. and he didn't have a chance to kind of rebuild his legacy after his involvement with yeah. Nation of Islam. If he had had another 30 years to kind of rebuild himself mm-hmm. as separate from Nation of Islam and kind of recraft his own platform of politics, um, I think it would have been a much fairer comparison mm-hmm. between Malcolm and Martin today. Mm-hmm. And that, so it's, it's, interesting um for me you know as a historian to think about the history of the discipline we really get in relatively large numbers for the Mm -hmm. first time black women and black men getting phds in history in the 1970s and so Mm -hmm. you see the revisioning of some of this history Mm -hmm. and a ton of work has been done but again um i believe just for example i believe Mm -hmm. i'm the only person on this campus who teaches about malcolm and martin um i teach the intro to african-american studies Mm -hmm. right again i do that um there's one person of african descent in the history department Mm -hmm. and he's not an americanist Mm -hmm. so when we're talking about the discipline of history um, the production of knowledge, mm-hmm. right? What we know, what we don't know, even structurally at a place mm-hmm. like this, right? There's mm-hmm. so much from the foundation in terms of knowledge production that is just missing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're doing the work. There are lots of great historians out there. We're doing the work. Um, I would recommend um, Malcolm X's A Life of Reinvention mm-hmm. by the late, great Manning Marable. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a historian at Columbia University for many years, and then Stephen Tuck's The Night Malcolm Spoke at Oxford Union. Mm -hmm. It's a great book. So if you're interested in Malcolm, read those. Check Mm -hmm. them out. Yeah. And just kind of the reactions in regards to his assassination, James Baldwin, um, I'm reading a quote from um, this article, and it says he had been a friend of Malcolm X's, and he was in London when he heard the news of the assassination. He responded with indignation towards the reporters interviewing him, shouting, You did it. It is because of you, the men that created this white supremacy, that this man is dead. You were not guilty, but you did it. Your mills, your cities, your rape of a continent started this all. And I think, I think it's all so deeply entwined. Um, that he's right. I agree with what mm-hmm. he's saying. And, you know, it's it's hard to know what would have happened had that not mm-hmm. been the situation. But mm-hmm. it is a reasonable response to have because this is, you know, the, the millionth black man that's been lost mm-hmm. because of, like, violence that's been generational and passed down from, you know, like, year after year, even mm-hmm. after slavery was abolished and, you know, Jim Crow was kind of done away with. So, yeah. And I also kind of want to get into um, him being viewed as a martyr 
Mm-hmm. I've noticed that that's something that's kind of been like reinvented mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. a couple years ago, I don't recall seeing Malcolm X in the same light that he's viewed as today. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious to know if either mm-hmm. one of you kind of have any like insight as to his perception as a martyr um, mm-hmm. and like in the years after his death, kind of like what popular culture, if that's changed at all. Yeah. Huh, great question. Mm-hmm. I think our answers, <laughs> might, our answers might be different. Mm-hmm. You can go yeah. ahead, I mean, for me, I honestly like didn't know that much about Malcolm X until I got to Santa Clara at like, University. Mm-hmm. Like, I took, I even took like AP U.S. history, which is lauded as like, oh, like university level like yep. history course. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we ever mentioned Malcolm X mm-hmm. no, mm-hmm. Um, at all. Like, if he was, I think looking. Trying to remember like what my textbook looked like. That was also like a very traumatic textbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that whole class was like interesting. Um, but I think like my only distinct memory of seeing like the name Malcolm X was in like this weird little like profile thing where mm-hmm. the editors of the textbook decided to make this little box about the Spike Lee <laughs> documentary mm-hmm. about Malcolm X, and it was in the chapter on like the nineties, mm-hmm. um, which was interesting because. I mean, that's when, like, the document, like, not the documentary, the, um, his, you know, movie came out, mm-hmm. not Malcolm X. Yeah. But then, like, outside of that, I mean, I, like, personally, do, I'm not, like, super well-versed in, mm-hmm. like, the life of Malcolm X and, like, how mm-hmm. he's, he's been viewed um, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, his legacy now. But I do know, um, at least my own, like, perceptions of him is, have changed because I think, like, we were saying before, like, you're fed so often, like, this, like, very sim- simplistic narrative mm-hmm. of, like, Malcolm on one end of a binary mm-hmm. and MLK between like a very specific time frame is on the mm-hmm. other end of the binary. Um, and because like the end of the binary that Malcolm X is often like placed upon is not one that's necessarily palatable to like a white audience, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily taught. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, like I haven't personally seen too much of like him being like remembered as a martyr, mm-hmm. but I, can, mm-hmm. I, I think I can see like how my people might like be perceiving yeah. that mm-hmm. especially when you consider his assassination was before kings too mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. i just realized is the fact that if you google his name or if you like see a picture of malcolm x um more than like half the time he looks angry he's yelling mm-hmm. and i think that mm-hmm. like that visual association mm-hmm. of him as an angry person even if you were to know nothing about Malcolm X, right. just seeing his name and his picture, and he's always yelling, and he always is pointing his finger, and you know he just looks angry. It's it's so easy to make that association that this is an angry man, this is a violent man. So let's not give like what he has to say too much legitimacy. Mm-hmm. But when you see MLK, you know. I've never seen a picture of MLK in the same situations that Malcolm is portrayed in. And I think that says a lot about which one, like Kaylin was saying, which one is more palatable and like the ways that this propaganda has kind of been used against us Mm -hmm. subconsciously Mm -hmm. without Mm -hmm. us even realizing the connections our minds are making. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, There's a spot that, uh, and I show it in my, my Malcolm and Martin class, a spot that uh, Nickelodeon put together, um, and I think it's Black History Month, and they had little kids quoting Malcolm dressed 
like Malcolm in the dark suit with the glasses, um, right? And so, so this is this is um, an intervention of sorts, but they're few and far between. That's awesome, actually. <laughs> but it, no, it's it's a great spot. It's a great spot. Um, I think it's a minute. Mm-hmm. But you see these little, you know, black and brown boys dressed like Malcolm, quoting Malcolm, um, and it's it's extraordinarily positive. But again, we have that versus Dr. King, you know, speaking before the the Lincoln Memorial, mm-hmm. um, and it's just those snapshots. Like that's what we get. And again, that's August of 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Dr. King has five and a half additional years, I think yeah. five years mm-hmm. of political life. But it's like, that's that's the snapshot. That's the picture mm-hmm. we get. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to this point, if I may, back to this point of, of kind of uh, Malcolm's martyrdom mm-hmm. or how he's viewed, particularly by black folks. You know, for me growing up, um, it would have been my junior high years, um, when Spike Lee's Malcolm X comes out, and that it was this really interesting synergy between that film and the music and the way that it captured, you know, life in in urban East Coast <laughs> neighborhoods, you know, um, mm-hmm. with the music, with hip hop mm-hmm. culture at that very moment. It was a, it was a moment that was very Afrocentric. And you had people um, who were very politically active, you know, um, like Public Enemy, mm-hmm. um, A Tribe Called Quest, X-Clan, Poor Righteous Teachers. You had mm-hmm. Muslims and Five Percenters at the center of hip hop culture at that very moment. And so it was a, it was, it was very cool to be coming of age at that mm-hmm. time, um, but to learn to to be politicized in a sense through through the culture that was circulating. And it was indeed a moment in which you saw the X ball caps, you saw the Malcolm X jerseys, Mm -hmm. all of this was happening. Um, People were, you know, putting down the gold chains and putting on black medallions, right? Mm -hmm. All of this was happening. Um, And so I think in that way, that that part of Malcolm was brought back to us Mm -hmm. as young black people. Mm -hmm. Um, And it stayed with some of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We we turn on, listen to the radio now, not so much. Um, But for some of us, Mm -hmm. we still listen to that music, Mm -hmm. right? This is real. So in that way, it's not so much that that Malcolm is a a martyr, Mm -hmm. but he's a hero that is a part of us. so that's my perspective from you know yeah. <laughs> from from that time that time mm-hmm. in, in in my childhood. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's interesting that you mentioned kind of like the integration of hip hop mm-hmm. into this um, because mm-hmm. from what I remember in the '90s, a lot of like the central figures mm-hmm. in hip hop were black Muslim men. Yeah, you know, like you had Ice Cube and you had I think Rakim also. Yeah, yeah, and like so you just had a lot of the most prominent people being Mm -hmm. black and Muslim. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of like Mm -hmm. a reflection Mm -hmm. of, you know, Malcolm X being black and Muslim, because I don't know any of their Mm -hmm. stories well enough to say that they, you know, turned to Islam because they recognized that Malcolm X was somebody like them Mm -hmm. who had found comfort in that religion. But I definitely think it, it says a lot about, you know, just kind of brotherhood and using religion mm-hmm. as 
something to ground themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, there, there's, so we're thinking back to the origins of hip hop, mm-hmm. right? In the, the mid to late 70s, there was always a critical impulse in the music, in, in breakdancing, mm-hmm. in graffiti. There was, there was a critique of racialized violence and racialized capitalism. Mm-hmm. And so I think when some of these folks were turning to Islam and they found Malcolm, it just made sense to mm-hmm. marry that in the music and in the culture in the 90s in particular. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to get into like a more contemporary topic that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. So I think Malcolm X seeing, you know, a picture of his dead body as mm-hmm. the newspaper cover for the article that ran the day he was assassinated was mm-hmm. probably one of the earliest images I can think of mm-hmm. of kind of like dead black bodies mm-hmm. being on display mm-hmm. um, in the media and it's something I've noticed that you don't really see white Americans kind of being mm-hmm. filmed after you know passing but it's something where if you are seeing somebody who is deceased it's more often than not either a brown person or a black person and I think mm-hmm. especially with you know this like recent attention to police brutality yeah. um, and just people being so used to seeing you know flipping on the news and seeing like camera footage of mm-hmm. and a black man being killed and you know like his dead body after i just i think it's a really interesting topic and i'd mm-hmm. like want to hear your opinion on kind mm-hmm. of like at what point do we you know like need to protect our own community and yeah. say you know like I understand maybe for some people that seeing a dead body really right. makes it real that right. this is a serious issue, but right. where do we like draw the line to protect ourselves? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's tough. I mean, it's so what, what we're talking about here is psychological and emotional trauma. This is, you know, this is what the history of violence in this country has given us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been passed down and now we have, you know, we have the phones, and so we're mm-hmm. just seeing it more often. Um, but if we think about certain communities, certain areas of the country um, where children, small children, grow up in the midst of, of this kind of consistent death, mm-hmm. um, imagine how traumatic that is for a small child to have, and we could say, you know, some scholars argue that, you know, being sent to prison is a, is a form of social death, right? Mm. So we could have, if, if, we, if we look at this more broadly, you know, an actual physical death and then the kind of social death that folks experience when they're being, when they're being incarcerated mm. and how that impacts young people, children, entire neighborhoods, then entire communities. Mm-hmm. How are black people, brown people dealing with this? How, how do we grapple mm-hmm. with this trauma? And then at the same time, right, it's how do we, and this is, an, I guess, an extra burden, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, at this particular moment, how do we get people to believe that, that this stuff, sorry, mm-hmm. um, is, is real, that it's happening, right, and that something needs to be done about it. And it's just, it's apropos in that we've had a government shutdown, we've had, you know, the individual at the top of our government talking crazily for a very long time about the brown hordes who are coming to take our jobs and ruin our homes and kill all of us. And that's a national emergency. Opioids, national emergency, mm-hmm. right? 
And I don't know if he officially declared that a national emergency, but mm -hmm. the way that it's being dealt with. But so what about the guns? What about the extreme poverty mm -hmm. that has defined you know, certain communities, certain areas of particular cities for generations? What about changing policies? Yeah. You know, these are questions that we can't necessarily answer or come up with answers to mm -hmm. because the folks who are demonizing us sit in power, mm -hmm. right? So again, it for me, it, it just remains a question. I don't have a particular answer. Yeah. Um, is there a balance in terms of exposing ourselves to this, to the death, to the violence? I don't think there is. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's an impossibility um, because the trauma is with us. We have 400 years of that mm -hmm. kind of trauma. And we as a country, and I'm borrowing this from, from Cornell West, mm -hmm. we aren't as a country politically, emotionally, um, intellectually mm -hmm. mature enough to actually face that 400 years mm -hmm. and then to deal with it. I, that's just my belief. That's where I think we still are. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that, you know, it just makes sense that I was watching 13th the other day for like the millionth time mm -hmm. and it just makes so much sense the way that Ava DuVernay is kind mm -hmm. of like framing it mm -hmm. as, you know, people used to be able to just kill black people on the street yeah. for looking at a white woman. Yeah. And when they realize this isn't something that's going to fly anymore because, you know, we have to start treating black people like citizens. We can't mm -hmm. jail every single black individual and just mm -hmm. funnel them straight into the prison because mm -hmm. that would be too suspicious. Yeah. We kind of have to come up with covert ways to express um, racism and kind of like our hatred for black people if that's something that we believe in. Mm -hmm. And so it just makes sense to me that you would have people who do sympathize with those racist beliefs mm -hmm. kind of being mm -hmm. attracted towards positions mm -hmm. of power like mm -hmm. police chiefs mm -hmm. or people who can kind of like, you know, blur the lines a little mm -hmm. bit and say, you know, so-and-so had it coming because yeah. we thought he had a gun, you know? Yeah. So it just makes sense to me that a lot of times the people who are in these positions of power are not in those positions because they really do want to like mm -hmm. better their mm -hmm. community or mm -hmm. the environment that they're kind of they have power over mm -hmm. they're there because they have some ulterior motive driving them mm -hmm. to that position mm -hmm. and they want to be able to flex that muscle still and not mm -hmm. get in trouble for it mm -hmm. yeah and I think it goes back to kind of our past discussions in our some of our other podcasts where we talk about these people who have privilege, even if it's like a relative, mm -hmm. like small amount of privilege mm -hmm. over another community, you almost feel like kind of drunk on that. And you mm -hmm. like feel like you need to exercise that, especially like when you see like inner marginalized like communities that like there's always marginalization within a marginalized group. Mm -hmm. And then so you see like if you're in a position where you can have some sort of power over like another group of people mm -hmm. you're going to want to use it mm -hmm. um and i think unfortunately it's that shown that that's part of human nature at this point mm -hmm. at least how like when you're looking at our country that's built on like the genocide of mm -hmm. indigenous people back in 1492 yeah um and then 400 years ago when the first slave ship came to the u.s like it's literally built like we're a society built upon like oppression, mm -hmm. genocide, mm -hmm. murder, mm -hmm. exploitation, mm -hmm. and all of that. And it's just a question now of like, 
these people are so empowered, is anything going to change? I mean, that's a huge mm-hmm. question. I don't mm-hmm. have an answer mm-hmm. to that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's yeah. just, yeah. like you said, like it's kind of where we are still. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And it wasn't for, you know, it wasn't for Barack to fix. Yeah. And I think this is something that, that some folks miss, right? It's something that people get wrong. This is one out of 44. Mm-hmm. And it's one co-equal branch of government, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? He, it, it's, it's not for him to fix. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things we can say about some of his policies, some of the decisions mm-hmm. he made, you know, drone use yeah. in the Middle East, um, yeah. um, you know, policies he put into place concerning the southern border. Mm-hmm. Um, we can critique Barack, but but my point here is that it wasn't for the same way it wasn't for Dr. King to fix everything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't for Barack to fix everything. This is, as Kaylin said, mm-hmm. this is this is the history of this place, mm-hmm. right? And so it, it it leaves us with a huge challenge. It really does. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things um, that again connects Dr. King and Malcolm is that they they fully understood that history. Mm-hmm. They understood the challenge ahead. Um, and and it's this is a question I've been asked many times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's counterfactual, but it's, it might be something to ponder. What if the two had have made it out of the 1960s? Mm. You know, yeah. what would their politics be? Would they have worked together? What would, what would the movement then become, mm-hmm. right? We never, we never <laughs> yeah. know. We yeah. never know. We never know. I think expecting um, like Barack Obama to kind of erase everything that's happened or expecting, you know, MLK to solve... 400 years of generational traumas is like equivalent to putting a band-aid on an amputated limb it's not mm. going to do anything because mm-hmm. you're not addressing you know how you even got to where you are and i think you know like you were saying they knew what they were up against mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. still persisted mm-hmm. i i think that like that's a that's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. to know mm-hmm. that you have the odds stacked against you not only are you black but you're a black man in America and in Malcolm X's situation he was Muslim and he was very openly Muslim you know the odds were just stacked against both of them and to know that and mm-hmm. to know you know the the different systems of oppression that were what was kind of holding you and people like you down and still having the courage to like wake up and do everything you mm-hmm. can for your community and mm-hmm. to further your cause is a very beautiful and selfless thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So I think, so for, in terms of like, you mentioned like moving forward, what, mm-hmm. not necessarily what do we do, but like what do we, <laughs> what do we see when we're looking into the future? And I think first off, I think everyone who's listening to this podcast, who like, and if you're interested in learning more mm-hmm. on this topic, like definitely mm-hmm. do your your own research yeah um, do the work do, yeah you have i mean the internet is a beautiful thing it's a beautiful and an ugly thing mm-hmm. but there's so many resources you can find on there check out our library our mm-hmm. library is amazing read his autobiography mm-hmm. yes yeah you can email me for book ideas <laughs> or just stop in office hours mm-hmm. yeah but i think it's it's tricky it's it's a very difficult identity to kind of get a hold on because mm-hmm. we don't know who Malcolm X really was. Mm-hmm. None of us really knew him because we didn't live with him. We didn't spend time with him. But also even the perception that we have of him, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. how close mm-hmm. is it to what yeah. he really was? Yeah. 
And that's, I mean, that's that's the task of, of scholars, of historians, mm-hmm. to, to do the digging, the excavation, right, to get us as close to Malcolm mm-hmm. and to Dr. King as we possibly can. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as this is our last podcast for Black History Month. We'd like to dedicate it specifically, again, to Malcolm X and uh, an observance of his assassination on February 21st, 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so definitely make sure you check out um, some of the resources that we just shouted out. Mm-hmm. We had the two book recommendations as well yes. um, earlier in the podcast. Um, again, if you have any suggestions for our podcast as well, we have our Google form set up. Um, mm-hmm. Please fill it out. We are we've had we have a whole list of topics that we're trying to get through. So if you want to add more, go for it because we definitely want to get through all of them yeah. um, before the end of the year, especially. Um, and yeah, thank you for listening. Yeah, may he rest in peace and power. Thanks for tuning in, guys.